0: You're listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, and this episode is sponsored by GlaxoSmithKline. Here's your host, Dr. Charles Turk. Welcome to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and joining me to discuss the role of biologics in the eosinophilic asthma treatment landscape is Dr. Ian Pavert, who's a professor of respiratory medicine at the University of Oxford. Dr. Pavert, thanks for being here today. Oh, well, thank you for the invitation. Delighted. To start us off, Dr. Paverd, would you give us an overview of the current treatment landscape for eosinophilic asthma?
1: Well, it's a rapidly changing field with new treatments arriving on a regular basis. But type 2 cytokine-targeted biologics are the main sort of new offering that we have. We have biologics, humanized monoclonal antibodies that target IL-5 or block the effects of IL-5 by targeting the IL-5 receptor alpha. We have a biologic that targets the IL-4 receptor alpha and blocks the effects of IL-4 and IL-13, both key cytokines in the pathogenesis of type 2 inflammation in the airway and elsewhere. We've had for nearly 20 years now a monoclonal antibody that targets IgE, and maybe particularly effective in more allergen-driven asthma. So yeah, it's a growing field. We've got a lot of treatment options
0: for our patients that have this key treatable trait. And if we zero in on a few of the conventional treatment options in particular, what are some of the collateral impacts when a patient has an inadequate response to maintenance therapy with high-dose inhaled corticosteroids, oral corticosteroids, or bronchodilators? Yeah, so the standard approach,
1: which would be a reasonable dose of an inhaled steroid in combination with a long-acting beta agonist, has failed to achieve control in patients that are suitable for biologics. And many of these patients have recurrent asthma attacks. These are episodes of airflow limitation that are not responsive to their salbutamol inhaler and need treating with oral corticosteroids, which come with fairly significant dose-related and treatment duration-related side effects that um, will be familiar to many of your viewers, including osteoporosis, weight gain, thinning of the skin, mental health issues, depression, anxiety. So, yeah, the burden of Uncontrolled asthma is not only due to the asthma itself, but also the treatment that's needed to treat asthma attacks particularly. And it can get complicated in the clinic in severe asthma because you've got problems linked to the asthma itself. You've got problems linked to comorbid conditions that might be due to type 2 airway inflammation elsewhere in the body. And you've got problems linked to the treatment that the patient needs to take for their asthma attacks. And some patients need regular oral corticosteroids to control their asthma, which
0: has a particularly high potential to cause side effects. With that background in mind, Dr. Paverd, let's turn our attention back to biologics. You'd mentioned targeting interleukins and IgE. How else do they work to treat eosinophilic asthma?
1: Well, the patient with severe eosinophilic asthma who is failing to respond to an inhaled steroid, you have to utilize other strategies to reduce eosinophilic airway inflammation. So the anti-IL-5 and the anti-IL-5 receptor alpha drugs, mepolizumab, benrolizumab, reslizumab, they deplete circulating eosinophils to very low levels, typically under 50 cells per microliter. So there are no eosinophils to be recruited towards the airway epithelium. The reservoir of eosinophils is empty. So that's how they work. Dupilumab, which targets the IL-4 receptor alpha, probably works more in the airway mucosal side by switching off the chemotactic signal that recruits eosinophils towards the epithelium. The anti-TSLP, which is a recently available biologic approach, works very proximally in the type two inflammation cascade and switches off type two cell cytokine production and has quite broad inhibitory effects on type two inflammation. I think anti-IgE, we really don't know how it works. If I'm quite <laughs> honest, that's still a mystery. Uh, Twenty years ago, its impacts seem to be. Largest in patients with type 2 airway inflammation. But exactly how it works is unclear. We know that sputum eosinophils and exhaled nitric oxide are reduced by treatment with omelizumab. So it's probably
0: inhibiting type 2 airway inflammation. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Clinicians Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and I'm speaking with Dr. Ian Pavert about the role of biologics in the eosinophilic asthma treatment landscape. So, Dr. Pavert, now I'd like to take a look at the use of biologics in clinical practice. You touched on this a little bit before, but which of our patients with eosinophilic asthma should be prescribed biologics and when?
1: Well, the first thing to say is they've had a massive impact in the five or six years that we've been able to use them. I mean, I've been working in severe asthma for 20 or 30 years, and really our job was about watching an orderly decline in the patient's problems linked to the asthma itself, but also problems linked to the treatment. And this landscape has been transformed by the biologics, and we're achieving extraordinary outcomes in some patients. But the patients we're really looking for have a number of features. Firstly, recurrent asthma attacks. And I'm particularly interested in how the patient feels when they take prednisolone. Um, The typical Type two high, eosinophilic asthma patient will say that prednisolone is really helpful and it works very quickly. That's always an important aspect of the history that I ask about. We want the patient to be on a reasonable dose of inhalers, so at least moderate dose ICS, and we want you know good evidence that they're taking it. You know, asthma can be uncontrolled because patients are not adherent with their treatment, and those are not patients that are attractive candidates for biologics. They're much Better option is to try and work with them to improve treatment adherence. And the other thing we're looking for is evidence of type 2 area inflammation. And this is an assessment that's based on measurement of biomarkers. And there are two biomarkers that are particularly helpful. The blood eosinophil count, which is typically raised in people with eosinophilic asthma, certainly above 150 and usually above 300 cells per microliter. And broadly speaking, the higher the blood eosinophil count, the better the patient is likely to respond to biologics, particularly the anti-IL-5 biologics. The other biomarker that's really helpful is exhaled nitric oxide or pheno, which is increased in exhaled air in severe eosinophilic asthma because of IL-13-induced nitric oxide production by the airway epithelium. So it's a great biomarker of IL-13 effects. And a raised pheno is proved to be a very good way of identifying patients who are going to respond well to Dupilumab and treatment that targets IL four and IL thirteen. Yeah, so these biomarkers are not always done in clinical practice. They're not part of routine clinical practice, certainly in non-specialist care. And we've got work to do to sort of raise awareness of them. But all other things being equal, if you see a patient with asthma who has a high pheno and a high blood eosinophil count, they are at risk. So there's good evidence now that they're at risk of asthma attacks, maybe have a four to five-fold increased risk of asthma attacks compared to the equivalently severe patient who has low biomarkers. And they are the patients that are likely to have the really good responses to the biologics that we've talked
0: about. Is there a memorable patient case involving biologics that you could share with us? Yes, there
1: is some, and it's one of the earlier patients that I treated, and we were involved in the first proof-of-concept study of mepolizumab back in 2009, but the patient that sticks in my mind participated in the subsequent phase three study, the Mensa study, and she was young, she had three kids under the age of five, and her asthma had completely ruined her life. She had horrendous problems, recurrent asthma attacks, including one that nearly killed her. So she was on ITU with a severe asthma attack. And she required high-dose maintenance treatment, including most significantly for her, prednisolone at around 20 milligrams a day. And she'd had awful side effects, depression, menstrual disturbance, and major weight gain. She'd put on 30 or 40 kilograms in weight, unable to work her sort of home life was very difficult her husband had left her and it was a very complex situation but the one feature of her case was that she had red hot biomarkers So her blood eosinophil count was very high until she'd started on regular oral steroids when there was some suppression. And she had a very high pheno. So she was, you know, hot, hot patient with very high risk, but also a very high likelihood of responding to biologics. She was randomized to mepolizumab in the phase three MENSA study and the treatment effects. And she was fortunate to be able to continue with treatment, open label and the extension study. But. It was a game changer for her. She had a terrific airway response, improvement in lung function, stopped having asthma attacks, stopped requiring maintenance oral steroids, Mm -hmm. and all the side effects melted away, really indicating that the airway inflammation was the dominant treatable trait in her and that all the other problems she had were secondary to that. And yeah, I remember bumping into her in the hospital corridor and I didn't recognize her because she'd lost so much weight and she looked so well. And she had to stop me and say, it's me. (laughs) Yeah, I've had
0: a great response to whatever you're giving me. You know, it's really changed my life. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. And we're almost out of time, Dr. Pavard. But before we close, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience about biologics or the treatment of eosinophilic asthma?
1: Yeah, so look out. For patients who are having recurrent asthma attacks, who need prednisolone frequently, and when they take it, they notice a good response. And do look at the blood eosinophil count and invest in a phenome machine. These are two simple biomarkers, and they really are simple, that tell you a lot about the risk of asthma attacks. And that's something you really do want to know about. But crucially, they tell you about a patient that has a risk of asthma attacks that you can modify with treatment. And it's very clear that the biologics that we've been talking about work particularly well in patients with high biomarkers. So that's something that you need to go away and maybe plan for, you know, how can I incorporate these measurements into my clinical assessment of patients? And if you've got a patient who's got hot biomarkers, recurrent asthma attacks, appears to be taking reasonable inhaled treatment, then
0: biologics could be a game changer for them. Those are great comments for us to consider as we come to the end of today's program. And I want to thank my guest, Dr. Ian Pavert, for joining me to discuss the impact of biologics in the treatment of eosinophilic asthma. Dr. Pavert, it was great having you on the program. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. And thank you for the invitation. This episode of Clinician's Roundtable was sponsored by GlaxoSmithKline. To access other episodes in this series, visit ReachMD.com slash Clinician's Roundtable, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.